0: Hello and thanks for joining us on Search for Truth. I'm really pleased to welcome you to your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. Today Brian brings us the third talk of ten programmes, which is called The Supremacy of Christ. Each week Brian's focusing on a fresh attribute of what makes Christ the supreme, incomparable, sovereign Lord. And today's title is The Cosmic Christ. So let's discover more of what that means from the Bible with Brian.
1: Thanks, John. You know, there was a time when non-conformist Jews took it upon themselves to try to emulate the rapturous experience of the Bible prophet Ezekiel. To achieve this, they engaged in religious exercises designed to recreate the vision which the prophet had of a heavenly chariot with God visibly enthroned above it you can look at that again in Ezekiel chapter 1 from verse 15. To arrive at such a mystic experience, they believed that detailed observance of the law was necessary, as well as a prolonged period of denying themselves all sorts of things. When they thought they were ready, they depended on help which they saw as coming from angelic beings in order to assist their upward passage. The biblically quoted book of Enoch references all this in some detail. No wonder people tried to reproduce it, for Ezekiel's vision must have truly been awesome. To be standing by the Kebar River and to see the heavens opened, and in the middle of a bright storm cloud there was some kind of mobile throne or throne on a chariot, and on the throne located above the wheels within wheels and those strange living creatures was, wait for it, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord a figure with the appearance of a man. Nothing clearer than that was discernible in this fiery spectacle, which seemed to pretty much defy words. This was the vision of the glory of God which was permitted to Ezekiel as the heavens were opened to the exiled prophet on the river bank. It was rather different in the case of a young Jewish rabbi who lived much later in time. He had a fanatical belief which fueled a hatred of what he and many of his contemporaries viewed as a perverse sect within Judaism, the cult of the Nazarene, who was known as Jesus Christ. With all his heart, young Saul of Tarsus longed to exterminate this delusion. Not just a longing, in fact, he was on his way to Damascus to make violent arrests, when he himself became the one struck down by the brilliance of a light which outshone the sun and which left him grovelling on the dust of the highway. A voice addressed him out of what the Apostle Paul later referred to as the heavenly vision. This was the vision of the glory of God as permitted to Paul. To his total shock, it would turn out to be none other than the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ who was speaking to him and later he would describe to others the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Notice how Paul has sharpened up the vision of the glory of God. Whereas Ezekiel had seen the semblance of the likeness of a man, Paul saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. Not even one like unto a son of man as Daniel saw, but this is now pin sharp. The light Paul saw that day put out every other light in his life. Whatever he'd previously prized about the light of the Hebrews or the knowledge of the Greeks or the glory of the Romans, it was now nothing, nothing at all compared to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That alone directed his lifelong ambition to magnify Christ. And this is what we find him doing as he begins to write to the Colossians. Unlike other Bible letters, where he begins by denouncing heresy, after greeting the Colossians, Paul launches straight into what is perhaps the greatest detailed presentation of the person of Christ in all of the Bible. The fact that he does it in rhythmical prose with some repetition of terms, suggests he may have been borrowing from or more likely extending an existing early Christian hymn. Teaching that was about the person of Christ was the major truth being attacked by the false teachers at Colossae. And so Paul brings the correct teaching about Christ which he presents to his readers before dealing with the false versions. Beginning in verse 15 he says, he who is the image of the invisible God, Firstborn before all creation, because in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, they have all been created through him and for him. The first verse of this ancient hymn celebrates the role of Christ in creation, introducing him to us as the image of the invisible God. Did Paul's sense of Jesus Christ as being the image of God date all the way back to his Damascus Road experience, we wonder? To call Christ the image of God is to say that in him the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested. Indeed, the invisible has become visible. In another of his letters, Paul declares that since the creation of the world, the everlasting power and divinity of the unseen creator may be clearly perceived in the things that have been made. But in Christ, there's an all-surpassing disclosure of the invisible God's power and divinity. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has shone into believing hearts through the same creative word that first called on light to shine out of darkness. The idea of Christ as the goal of all creation resonates powerfully with us from this first verse as we now proceed further. He indeed is before all things and they all cohere in him. He is also the head of the body, the church. This is a kind of link piece or bridge before we arrive at verse 2 and it serves to reaffirm the pre-existence and cosmic significance of Christ which we've already learned about from verse 1. But notice, it also introduces Christ as the head of the body, which is his church. This is Paul's distinctive contribution to our understanding of the person of Christ. Was this seed also sown in his mind when the risen Lord addressed him on the Damascus road, crying out from heaven about the injuries being inflicted on his body on earth? Other Bible writers such as the Apostle John and the writer to the Hebrews, inform us equally of Christ's cosmic significance and pre-existence. But God granted it to Paul to break the news of the metaphor of the church being the body of which Christ is the head. The risen Christ is head of the body which is the church. In his earlier letters of Corinthians and Romans, Paul has developed the idea of the body, It's here, and in Ephesians, that he now subsequently develops the idea of Christ as the head of the body. In all things he must have the supremacy. But now, let's get into the second verse, with its mention of further reasons for Christ's supremacy. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in all things because in him it was decreed that all the fullness should take up residence and that through him god should reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him whether those on earth or those in heaven just as the first verse celebrates christ's role in the old creation the second verse celebrates his role in the new creation in reconciliation as in creation The work of Christ has a cosmic significance. All things in heaven and on earth were created through him, but all things equally have been estranged from their creator. Paul had elsewhere argued that the whole created order had been subjected to futility, but here he implies hostility. Creation itself will one day be liberated, he tells us, from its present enslavement to decay. As with the freedom experienced by the children of God, this too is underwritten by Christ's redemptive work at the cross. The peace available through the death of Christ may be freely accepted or it may be imposed. The reconciliation of all things spoken of here would seemingly include pacification, as distinct from salvation. All will bow the knee, and in that sense, be reconciled to the truth of who Jesus is, even when it's too late to save them. The words firstborn and beginning, as well as all things, are common to both verses of this hymn fragment in Colossians chapter 1. For example, both in creation, both in relation to the old creation and the new, Christ holds the rank of firstborn. In other words, he's supreme. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily in Christ. The terminology takes us back to the mystic vision error that we began with. False teachers were saying God's substance was smeared across a range of demi-gods, angelic beings who gave access to higher realms of mystical experiences. How wrong! Jesus Christ is fully God. No created being shares that status. I once heard of the famed conductor Toscanini as he was conducting the Philadelphia Philharmonic. They had just completed a performance of one of Beethoven's symphonies, and the audience was in raptures. It had been one of those nights when everyone had performed seemingly flawlessly, and the result had sounded like perfection. The audience acclaimed the conductor and his orchestra. They had to take many bows. Toscanini was a man famous for his criticisms by which he attempted to secure further improvements from his orchestra. That night after many bows he turned to his orchestra and said in a low voice you are nothing. They didn't flinch. That was normal treatment from their conductor but he then went on to say something that truly did shock them. He said and I am nothing. Then quickly he added but Beethoven is everything. We could capture Paul's message here and say, you are nothing and I am nothing, but Christ is all and in all.
0: As usual, I remind you that there's a transcript booklet for this series uh, containing all ten talks. So, if you'd uh, like one or more, ask for the title, The Supremacy of Christ. Now, if you've got pen and paper to hand, I'll also give you our contact details. Here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. You might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into ebooks, and they're available at amazon.co.uk forward slash Kindle dash ebooks. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box and uh, you'll find them. So many thanks again for the pleasure of your company today. We really do appreciate your interest. And next week is talk number four in this series. So please join us if you can. Until then, very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you.